Hello and welcome to the Cowboy Jesus Podcast. It is great to come to you here today. This is Steve Poos Benson, the host of the podcast. As I say, we ride the rodeo of religion and life. A lot of different creative people who join me down in the basement of Columbine United Church. A huge thank you to Columbine United Church for allowing me the time and space to do this podcast. You know, a couple episodes back, I interviewed a really good friend of mine who is a colleague and a mentor of mine, Russ Kane. And I asked Russ after that interview, he said, I said, who else do you know that, that you think I should be interviewing? And he said, Dave Arnett, you need to interview Dave Arnett. And we talked a little bit about who Dave was. I reached out to Dave. Dave sent me his bio, and I was like, Oh my gosh, this is someone I definitely want to talk to and have on the podcast. So Dave is sitting here in my basement of the church with me. Dave, thank you for coming on. It's great to have you. Very, very glad to. Thanks, Steve. So let's start by, Dave, tell us a little bit about who you are, and then we're going to kind of get into everything about your amazing life that you live. So tell us a little bit about you. Glad to. Um, I actually um, grew up in a small town, small farm town, just outside of Ann Arbor, and uh, uh, I'm I'm one of three uh, boys in our in our family. In fact, one of my older brothers, uh, Jeff, just recently re- retired as a pastor. Um, oh, back, back in our uh, kind of home hometown area, of Michigan. So. Um, in, in terms of growing up, my, uh, dad was, uh, he actually climbed poles as an occupation. He was a lineman and, uh, and a combat vet from the oh. Korean conflict and a little uh-huh. bit at the end of World War II. And I think that, that played a role for him in his life a lot. My mom, I could spend hours talking about and promise I won't, but, you know, MS, I think m- multiple sclerosis played a, a big role in her, her life and as a result hers um ours but honestly uh, i don't think i knew it at the time but she's been a real inspiration for me in my life in uh, many many wonderful ways that's cool good now one of the things that i want to interview you about uh when russ and i were talking is that you are a mountain climber and you have climbed the seven summits we're going to talk a little bit about the seven summits but it has been kind of like a passion of yours, it sounds like, from a, a young age, a young man. Tell us about mountain climbing and how you got into mountain climbing, yeah, mountaineering. It's a, it's a great, great question. And when you grow up in a little farm town outside of Ann Arbor, the tallest place is an off-ramp, right? So <laughs> there's just not a lot of mountains or even big rock faces to climb. But I always liked heights when I was young. I actually worked... In, in construction as a roofer, and being up on, on roofs was a great um, way to experience heights for me. But, you know, honestly, I didn't think you were a roofer. I was. And that's I how was. you got used to heights, is being up on top of a yeah, roof. It was kind of a rush. I liked that feeling of having air beneath me, uh-huh. not directly beneath me if you're on a roof, but uh, yeah. And, um, the corporation that I worked for gave us a block of time off every certain certain number of years. It was a wonderful sabbatical type of, of opportunity. And I, I found myself in my, my first one having more time than I, than I planned. And it was kind of a changing point in my life going on anyways. 
So I, I looked at climbing. I huh? um, took a class out in California in the Ansel Adams wilderness. And, and then I actually um, did a trip to Nepal, my first trip, and uh, climbed a couple of trekking peaks there, uh-huh. 20 and 21,000 feet peaks. Uh-huh. And I absolutely loved it. I love being part of a team doing that and what it means you know, day after day when you're with the same group of folks and you're all very dependent on each other. I loved the crunch of, of um, you know, ice under your boots. I loved the challenge of it. And it brought so much more to me than, than just doing it, than just bagging a peak, as we often talk about right. here in Colorado. Right. And it was uh, something that I wanted to p- pursue more, quite honestly. Great. So you started climbing, you started going in, into Nepal. Meanwhile, you're working for GM or Intel? Uh, both over time. Uh-huh. Excellent, excellent question. I uh, grew up in a small town, like I said, uh, probably, you know, uh, middle class, lower lower middle class family. Wasn't sure how I was going to go to college because of my, my grades. GM actually put me through college oh, in, wow. in their own engineering university. And uh, it was an intern program all the way through. But after graduating, uh, I, I joined, joined Intel Corporation. And um, this was 1984. Not a lot of people even knew what, what, what Intel did. I had, actually had to carry around a little keychain with a microprocessor <laughs> on it back then just, just to explain to people what we did and who I actually worked, worked for. And when you grow up just outside of De, Detroit and you leave GM after multiple years and people ask you, what, what, what are you thinking about? But it was a great opportunity. So... That's great. So you started, you worked with Intel, you're starting your, your career. I started, I was a minister in 84, right out of grad school. Wonderful. So, so yeah. we started our careers about the same time. Yeah. So you're a young man, you're working, and you start climbing. Um, and then at some point, you start climbing some major peaks. Talk about the major peaks that you were climbing. Yeah. So if anybody's giving thought to it, and certainly it's, it's, it's different talking to folks who may be in Colorado and already around mountains, um, I, I found that getting training first, and I, I definitely want to advertise that, is really, really valuable. I remember after I had climbed, climbed Everest and I'm, I'm back in the country and you know, I'm talking to, to folks, people ask me how they could climb it. I said, well, what have you already climbed? Um, I haven't yet. Well, <laughs> great. Do this and this and this first. And I think that's really important because I can tell you as a member of, you know, Douglas County Search and Rescue, we find that, you know, getting that training, getting that experience before you go out and get the exposure is is really important. So, so did you set a goal to climb Everest? Was that a major life goal? I wanted you set out at some point, that's my big daddy. I'm going to go after this. I really didn't, honestly. Oh, really? I really didn't. I, you know, one of my my first major mountains was Denali um, uh-huh. in Alaska. In Alaska. Yeah. And it was wonderful. There was a lot of work. It was beautiful. But I, I never had Everest really on a, as a bright spot on my own personal radar screen. Um, I had done a number of other mountains around the uh, world. Um, Choyu, which is a 26,000-foot mountain. I'd, I'd been part of a team there and, wow. and other things. But So honestly, you're doing some serious climbing. I was you're doing, not just going 14ers in Colorado. Yes, sir. I mean, yes, you're sir. talking about major peaks in the world. Right. And I've, I've probably climbed, personally, I've climbed more outside of Colorado, huh. outside of the, the U.S. than I have in. 
But um, quite honestly, I was wrapping up my climbing career. My wife and I were climbing Kilimanjaro, and it was a great opportunity to be on a beautiful mountain together. And um, I thought I was wrapping it up, right? We had two, two young children who are now grown, young, young ladies. And uh, I, I was thinking I was wrapping it up. And during one day on the, tr the trail, you know how you get kind of spread out on a trail, our uh, lead guide on that, who turned out to be from Colorado also, um, asked me if, if I'd ever thought about climbing another 8,000-meter mountain, another, you know, really big 24, 25,000-foot-plus mountain. And I said, well, you know, I had a new role in Intel at the time. Our kids were, were young. Um, I said, I, you know, I, I maybe thought about it earlier, but probably not so much. He, uh, he said, well, totally get it, but think about it. And, uh, you know, We've, we've got a team going next year. We would love it if you joined us as part of that because you knew some of my other climbing back background. I don't think I talked the whole rest of the day on the trail. He also asked me not to tell my wife till <laughs> after the Kilimanjaro Summit Day. I think he, he didn't want her distracted, and he thought she might kill him while he slept in his <laughs> tent. But um, after we talked about it, thought about it, prayed about it, talked to our kids about it, who were pretty young at the time, we really felt led that it was the right timing for me. And that's what brought me to climb Everest. But up until then, I had no no path or, or no plan to it. So what was it like climbing Everest? It's beautiful. It's uh, wonderful. I mean, I've had the privilege of climbing in Nepal and in the Himalayas multiple times. And as much as I you know, love Colorado mountains, and they're incredibly beautiful, these are twice as high. And it's wow. it's just a beautiful place. Wow. It's a wonderful culture. Twice as high. Yeah. I mean, some of them are, obviously. Right, right. Uh, but it's wonderful. Everest, um, part of it is the challenge is it's just so high that the uh, climatization takes a long time. And you're actually uh -huh. making multiple trips up the mountain, down the mountain, each time multiple days, each, each time higher, and then all the way back down. You have to get things up there. You have to get your own body acclimatized uh, uh, to it. And all that is a challenge. So it's really more about perseverance and I think mental mental focus because a, a climatization hurts. There's just pain when your body's adjusting to that, right? So, what does fitness look like? How do you get yourself in shape? I yeah. mean, we're talking about may. This is not just hiking a 14er in Colorado, which basically you have to be in shape to climb a 14er. You just can't decide to go climb a 14er. You have to be ready. What kind of how, what do you do to get in shape to climb these massive peaks like Everest? What do you do to get in shape? Yeah, so when I when I thought about getting in shape physically, there were multiple as, aspects. I I enjoyed running anyways, but uh -huh. I found I, you know, doubled what I ran and I made sure all I ran was up up and down hills were uh -huh. really important because if you run flat, it's not going to give you the same training right. as if you are doing doing hills, both up and, and down. So that was really important to me. And quite honestly, it was multiple hours a day but between running, lifting, being, being pack fit, which means going out with a pack and going on those same hills because you need to be able to carry a pack that weighs a lot while how you're doing How much this. is a pack? 60 you pounds, know, 80 pounds? Yeah, it's... 
probably probably 50 60 on a 50, long 60. long haul and it it depends on the climb and what opportunities there are you know to to have pack animals carry it part part way there and those those kind of things but it's a bunch i'll give you another example on it to that excellent question on denali we were probably carrying packs that were probably 60 pounds and oh, pulling gosh. sleds that you're were, pulling a sled on top was, of carrying a 60 pound probably pack. 80 yeah so it's i mean it was a lot of work but honestly, those times when you're working hard, those are the ones I remember most in a very, very good way because that, that challenge is important. So, you know, I think Everest, it was wonderful in, in terms of being part of a team and you build, you know, lifetime, quite honestly, lifetime friendships out of that. Um, it, it, it was truly a, you know, life-changing thing for me. So... Um so the seven summits, yes, you sir. kind of fall into the seven summits. Let's tell everybody if they're not familiar with the seven summits are, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this was actually a, a concept that was created years ago by, by folks that were getting into climbing. And so when you talk about the tallest peak on each continent, obviously Everest is not only tallest peak in the world, it's tallest, the tallest peak inside Asia, right? In our yeah. our kind of North America, that's Tenali in Alaska. In South America, that's Aconcagua, which is 22,800 feet. It's Kilimanjaro, Africa, da-da-da. So it's the tallest peak on every continent. And there's a little bit of disagreement on some continents. Like, if do you call it Australia or Australasia, which includes Karsten's Pyramid that is not in Australia? And then when you talk about... How about um, Europe? Is it Mont, Mont, Mont Blanc or, or is it Elbrus, which is actually Russia, but that's part of that, that you know, Europe continent. So. Yeah, so it was really fun. So I started doing some research. I read a book back in, I think it was like early 80s about somebody who climbed all seven mm-hmm. summits in seven months or something like that. And he had a list of the seven and then... then there grew this controversy as far as what really are the highest Absolutely. peaks. And so there's different lists that different people have uh, as far as what are the seven peaks. So what are the seven that you climb? Yeah. So the probably five that are that are not in the con- contention that you're talking about are, uh, you know, absolutely Everest, Denali, Kilimanjaro in Africa, Aconcagua in um, um, South America, right? Um I climbed Karsten's Pyramid, which is in Papua, so think Papua New Guinea. Uh-huh. And if you think of it as Australasia, which includes not only Australia, but the, you know, the Indonesia area and PNG and all these, um, Karsten's is a, uh, a bigger mountain than Kosciuszko, which is in the actual um, landmass of Australia. I also climbed um, Elbrus, which is in Russia. It's on that Russia-Georgia border. It's right. eight, 18 and a half. Um, I think Mont Blanc is 15 and a half or so, 1,000 feet. Um, and then I'm overlooking one with, with apologies. But, uh, uh, oh, Antarctica is um, oh, right. Vincent Massif. So that's, you know, Vincent, the Vincent Mountain Range, and it's the tallest peak there. Right. Wow. So what, is the, what was the hardest peak? It's an excellent question. Um, 
And it's when, when I give um, mountain climbing talks or, you know, al- alpine talks, um, I always get and I always love because the answer is all of them were right. and all of them they worked, had to right? Be. right? They all had their own unique thing. Everest, it just takes so much time and it's so much, you know, variance over that time in terms of what you're, you're doing that it, it brought its own challenges to me. And it was, I was gone for Everest um, two months plane to wow. plane. And our, our kids were young, so I would, you know, call home over, over sat phone when we got back to base camp and talk for five minutes to the kids and, and to, to my, my wife, with whom, by the way, all this wouldn't, without whom, all this wouldn't be possible. If you don't have a partner that is incredibly patient and tolerant and supportive, you know, none of this is, is possible. So we wouldn't be having this conversation. I wouldn't have a right to have any part of this conversation if I didn't have, yeah, have, of course. have an amazing wife. Yeah, that's and great. I'm also adding that because at some point she may listen to this. I want to make sure that <laughs> comes across. But um, Everest was hard. Denali was hard because you're just carrying so much, pulling so, so much, and there's a lot of exposure to the elements, right? There's a there's an area called the Windy Corner where you can get halted there, and teams have for you know that entire entire window kind of thing. Probably the most challenging to me was Karsten's, uh, Karsten's Pyramid. And this is this beautiful rock mountain in a pyramid shape. And um, the actual mountain is a one-day one climb up and down. It's probably the most technical of the seven, but it's a one-day climb. To get there, though, especially back then, and I climbed this in 2013, um, it was a week-long trek through the oh jungle just to get there. And a week long trek just to get there through yeah, the jungle. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And it was it was beautiful. Uh, you know, it's the kind of thing we don't ever see here in Colorado in the um, south southwest. But what I found, and I had trained for it really hard because I I knew it was going to be a lot of work. And it's a very um, infrequently climbed mountain just because of the challenges that it brought. But the first three four days plus. You're in the super dense jungle. You can see maybe maybe here to the wall, right, 20 oh feet, because it's just so all green, yeah. green and right. dense, and it's torrential rain. But you're also walking through basically basically knee deep mud. So every oh stride, you're trying to get your boot to come back out of this thing, and it's that stride after stride, hour after hour, day after day, it was some of the absolute absolute hardest work that that I've ever done. Wow. But. Honestly, I probably learned as much or more from that mountain as I did anything else because it was about perseverance and it was about taking one step after another. And it also helped me learn how to dial down that, you know, kind of high-pitched whining noise in my own, my, my, my own, my own head because I'm, I'm walking along thinking about how, how tired I am and realizing I'm surrounded by incredible beauty, incredible plant life, you know, tribal folks that – most folks won't ever get right. to see. And it right. was a real gift being there, as it was on all these other mountains. So what's the whining voice in the back of your head? Tell me, tell me about that. What is that voice? Because my guess is there were had to have been a lot of voices in your brain yeah. over your climbing career that said, what the hell are you <laughs> doing? How, why are you doing this? This could kill me. What do you do? What do you do with that voice in the back of your head? Yeah. So I, for me, and I, I remember I was giving a talk to a high school group and I was talking about voices and I wanted to clarify, these are not voices that say kill, kill, kill. So I wanted to make sure they got that and right, anybody right. listening gets that. But I think we all have 
voices, right, that um, talk to us. And for, for, for me, they come in, you know, two forms. If I'm on a long trail run on a, on a hill, it's that voice that says, I'm tired. You know, maybe I've gone as far as I should. I, uh, there's a certain amount of, you know, risk, and maybe I should turn around. And honestly, what I do about that one was something that was taught to me by a good, good friend. His uh, wife, who was um, a really close friend, um, had MS also, and she had died from it the year before. So uh-huh. my friend Bobby told me, hey, Dave, when you're out there and you're really tired and you don't think you can go anymore, take one more step for your mom, wow. my, my mom who had right. MS, right. And, and take one more step for his wife, wow. Lori. And wow. that that worked. It absolutely worked. I could take one more step for my mom, Sally, one more step for his wife, Lori, one step for my, myself, and yet just that keeping going, I think we don't always know how much we, we can do, how far we can go. So, did, so let's talk about that. I mean, you had to overcome perceived limitations. Not anybody can go climb Everest or Denali or any one of these. How do you overcome your perceived limitations? Yeah, I think part of it, you know, for me is – um, deciding to go in the first place. So, you know, those, those hard questions that we don't always ask ourselves, that we don't always pay attention to when someone else asks us, were really valuable to me in this. If, if this guide on um, Kilimanjaro for us, who became a, a very good, good, good friend after that, um, hadn't asked me that hard question and we hadn't given a thought, I wouldn't have been there, there at all. So it's paying attention to those hard questions. I think, too, honestly, um, and it's, it's, I'm not the one that came, came up with it, obviously, but it's knowing why. It's knowing what your why is on this is so important. If I was just going to a mountain to bag that uh, peak, the odds of success, the odds of getting what you know, God gives us out of this would be so much less. But knowing why I was there and what I wanted to uh, accomplish out of this was really important. So what was your why? What is your why? My why was to um, learn and grow from that journey overall. And it, it's, it's turned out to be each of these, these climbs have, have brought so much to me in terms of my own growth, in terms of helping me have more of a kit in, in what I uh, bring. So that's, that's been my, my, my why, is to you know, go to Antarctica and spend time in what I knew was going to be very, very cold and a little bit challenging, but you know, learn from, from that. And, and each of these. Has so what did you learn from Antarctica? Um, more than anything else is just that we're surrounded by this incredible beauty. I mean, Antarctica is, uh, and I only saw part of it, obviously, right. but it is these vast ice sheets broken up by really jagged mountains. And it's something that, you know, um, if you don't like the um, cold, you, you, you may not ever have an, an interest, but it's, it's seeing that, you know, not only is it beautiful, but but people thrive in these these wow. type of en- en- environments, and that's been true on each of these mountains. Quite honestly, um, it's it's just uh, it's it's beautiful. Wow! So you're climbing these peaks, you're working at Intel. What are you learning, and how are you applying your why, yeah. your fitness, your training? Your are you working on a team? Are you hiking solo? Or are you on a no, team? No, no, no. This is always with the team. And with the team. And in fact, most of these, you're you're not only traveling with the team, but you're tied in to two or three other folks. Because if you're traveling over a glacier 
and there's a crack in that glacier that's covered up, right. one of you may punch through into that crevasse, right. and the rest of the team needs to be prepared to, to actually rescue. So that, uh, that rope team was a key bond for me also. So what did you learn from climbing that you were applying to your job and to your life uh, pu- privately into your life as well as publicly at Intel? What, did, what were you taking? You know, I think first and foremost that it's all about people. That, that what we do, whether it's on a mountain, whether it's in a corporation or a church or a volunteer team, and especially at home, is that it's all about people. I mean, you cannot get up a mountain um, without people in whatever form you're, you're doing. W- within Intel, I had the wonderful privilege of being an individual contributor and, and different roles all the way through to you know, being a um, vice president and a director. And in all those, I, th- I think my key learning was we don't, we don't make it. We don't do it well. We don't do it at all if, if we're not keeping in mind that it's about p- people and you know, how we, we treat people, how we bring others up um, as we are um, going ahead also. Do you think people were intimidated you intimidated by you of, of all your climbing? Were they intrigued by it? Did they say, oh, man, I don't know if I can work with this guy. I mean, look what he's doing. I, I, I don't. I mean, nobody ever told, told me that uh-huh. anyways. Um, I think uh, I, I, I receive wonderful interest, and I've, I can't tell you how many talks I've, I've, I've given be it to schools or churches or scouts organizations or rotaries or other things and definitely w- within um corporations yeah. it, it's been a gift too and i think i think what people love and what i love is to understand the the exact questions you're asking how do you make it through in those times when it's challenging right you'd ask ask about voices and and the other the other voice that i found even more challenging climbing climbing everest and also some of these other mountains is in those cold, dark hours of the night when you're in your tent, and you may be in your tent, you know, 10 hours, right, yeah. while, while it's dark, and you may only sleep two or three of those, right? Oh so gosh. you've got a bunch of other time where those quiet thoughts start creeping up. Am I doing the right thing? Am I good enough? I have young children. Am I putting my family at risk by being here? Am I a good enough team member in the rope team that I'm on? And those, those quiet questions come. And what it helped me realize is I, I not only had those quiet questions on, you know, a uh, mountain climb, I, I had them about work. I, Lord knows I had them about raising daughters, right? Right, right. So many things, those quiet questions come. And it, it's what you do with those. And I think we all go through that. But uh, um, it's what you do with those and how you find peace with that. And it's knowing the family and the support that I had back at home. It's knowing the team that I was on in the mountain. It's, it's knowing that I wasn't there just to get up and down, but I was growing throughout this and that I was going to be the same person if I reached that top or not. But the work that I was putting into it would make me grow. And I think it's been a, that gift over time for me. Now, you know, I call those voices the negative backseat driver. Absolutely. There's someone who's sitting back there saying, you're not good enough. You're not worthy. You're crazy. Who do you think you can do? What do you say to people to help them overcome that, to shush those backs, that backseat driver, those voices? What do you tell people? That's a great, great question. And when, when, when I was talking about giving this uh, presentation at a, at a high school, I was talking about voices. And I, this was probably 8 a.m. in the morning, right, which you don't expect high school kids to be very awake then. And they were super engaged 
gauge. But one young young gentleman way in the back said, yeah, I get those. And I thought he was um, joking with me. And it, it, it took me a while to realize, I think I think high school kids more than anybody hear those right. those voices right. and and go through it and for for me quite honestly what I found and what I I recommend again is is knowing who is on your actual rope team and it's not just the folks that are physically tied in with you on a mountain it's those 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 folks at at church those folks at school those folks at work or where you um, volunteer that are your closest friends that you open up to that you're you're transparent with i mean my wife my my best friend knew my concerns going in and what i was queasy about and to be able to um, um, share that and have folks that you knew were on your rope team as part of it played a critical role for me do you also think that because i've noticed this as well is that People who are taking a risk, who are putting themselves out there, are the ones that battle the voices the most because they're, they're, they've got a sense of ambition. They're wanting to accomplish something. They're taking a risk. They're, don't, don't you think that those are the people who really battle the voices? It's an excellent question. I think probably. I think it, the other facet, though, if you are putting yourself on the edge and you've got those voices coming in, it's like if you live close to a to a train track or a, or a oh. highway. Yeah, the right, more you hear right. those voices and the more you deal with those voices, which doesn't mean finding a way to turn them off, but it's yep, yep, I heard that, right? Right. And I, um, so it's a way of saying, okay, got it, you're there, fine, thank you, shut up, right? I'm gonna keep on going on. Yeah, which I th- I think is a part of what contemplation. Teaches us also, right? I mean, Roar, Roar talks about f- focusing, and it doesn't mean that you won't have things pop up in your mind. It doesn't mean that things won't won't float by. And oh yeah, I need to pick up bread on the way way home. But it's it's learning how to deal with those things that become so important. Did you think about it on Everest? I got to th- pick up bread on the way Not home. Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. Excellent question. Yeah. So let's talk about ambition. One of the things that um, I really believe strongly in is ambition, is having a sense of ambition. How did ambition play a part of your career, your mountain climbing? I mean, you had to have something inside you that said, climb, climb these seven peaks, climb Everest, climb. Talk about ambition. Where was ambition in the middle of your life? Yeah, excellent question. I think uh, two or three parts in, in my answer, and I'll try and keep it tight. But one is my mom, who I talked about, Sally. Um, she is, she is uh, passed now. But she, she contracted MS a couple years before I was even born, right? And this uh-huh. was back when they didn't know anything about MS. They don't know everything about it now, but they told her, you know, you've got a couple of years before you won't be able to walk, get, wow. you, get your house in order, because not long after that, you'll probably die. She actually, um, she actually lived until she was over 70. Um, oh, wow. Which was, for her timing with MS, it was, um, it was a very rare thing. And I think part of it was just her faith and her strength and her um, courage in that. So that was a, a, a great role model to me. As a person growing up, um, and if you can't tell by now that I stutter once in a while, then you're just not paying attention. But um, there'd be times when I'd feel like, well, I, I, I can't, can't get up in front, can't, can't talk. 
and watching her as a role model, watching what she went through with a much greater challenge, um, gave me more of an am ambition, if you will, in a in a positive way to push myself beyond where I was comfortable. And I think that that really played a role. So it's cool. I mean, you mentioned your stutter. We talked about this a little bit before we turned on the mics, is that it became an impetus for you to start public speaking, mm -hmm. that you were not going to let this get in the way of your own ambition. And you kind of dealt with it head on and you went after it and you have sought to overcome it. Talk about that. Yeah. So again, I'm, I was very grateful to GM General Motors for putting me through school and they were, they were, they were wonderful to me. I, I had multiple job offers after graduating from their engineering school. Um, but I joined Intel, who was a much smaller company than a very not well-known company, because I, I believed it would push, push me harder. It would cause me to have to get up in front, to spend time in front of you know, customers and in front of you know, broader, broader audiences. And as a kid, you know, I was afraid, honestly, to even, even answer the phone, right? It was uh -huh. hard for, wow. for me to answer the phone, uh -huh. um, so I avoided speaking when possible but this was an opportunity it's one of those um hold your breath and take a uh change in direction type opportunities and it was a gift being being part of that quite honestly and it it it, it was everything that i had hoped and was kind of afraid of and in, in that it that it did push me it did push my, my, my envelope further in intel was a very ag aggressive culture um, i was in uh, uh, combination of roles that that caused me to have to to push more, and it was a wonderful gift doing that. What's harder, climbing Everest or overcoming stuttering? Definitely stuttering. Oh, Definitely. really? Because uh, it's always there. You know, right. I mean, driving over here, I knew I'm going to be talking with you. I want to do the right things. I want people to get a good, you know, feeling and experience when they hear us talking, and uh, so it's it's always there. I, th I think other people don't don't notice it as much as I do, at least uh -huh. that, according to my wife. But uh, um, it, it, it's always there for I, me. I think, you know, it's profound is that we – I don't think um, we ever really know the, th the challenges that people have to face. Like one of the things I've often said is, you know, we always kind of put our best foot forward and whatnot. But with everybody, you scratch their surface, and there's a something. Everybody has a something that they're dealing with – that they have to overcome to be successful in life. They have to, whether it's stuttering or some type of disability, a learning disability, a physical disability, and they have to develop an ambition that says, I'm gonna overcome this. I'm not gonna let this get me down. I'm gonna get off the couch. I'm gonna live a life, and I'm gonna learn how to deal with whatever it is that's keeping me back. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely, and, and I think it's a, uh, it's a wonderful gift as part of that for for me to be able to have this kind of a conversation to be up in front of audiences you know talking about mountain climbing and what my key learnings are from that in front of you know hundreds of uh, folks is a as a gift and I don't think it would mean as much to me if I hadn't gone through the challenge to get there which is true about climbing true about career true, true about family those those challenges that keep us up at night where we hear those quiet voices those are the ones that make it even more powerful and more special when the right things happen now one of the reasons why I wanted to interview you uh, 
is your sense of soul, your sense of spirituality. Because when I talk with Russ, Russ uh, just retired from being the pastor at New Hope Presbyterian Church down in Castle Rock, Colorado. And he said, you are a person filled with faith that you know that you're actively involved in a, in a church you've been involved at new hope for quite some years talk about your sense of spirituality and mountain climbing how those two kind of mesh together yeah. let me just say first that to hear those words came from uh russ who i i consider a very good good friend i am i can float on that for days and days and days quite honestly because he's a man with incredible character that i have learned from every day yeah there's so, a lot of us who feel that way about russ he's, he's just one of those rare human beings isn't he he's truly, just a great person truly yeah. absolutely a blessing and hopefully he won't you know listen to to, to, to this because I, I wouldn't <laughs> want to compliment him where he heard but uh so um faith to me um has been a powerful gift. And this is one I think I also got from my mom. I, I grew up in a you know Baptist church in a small town where we went to church twice every Sunday. You know, I was in youth group, a bunch of things. And it was a Baptist church and everything we classically think about Baptist in terms of rules and everything else. But it 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 did bring me closer to to God over time. And I, I probably drifted away during college and in my, you know, early twenties and, you know, kind of had a wind window away. Um, coming here in Colorado, and we moved here as part of my f- my fourth Intel corporate move, um, brought us to New Hope Prez down in uh-huh. in Castle Rock, and that was a gift because it wasn't about being Presbyterian, which we we hadn't ever been. It was about being in a community, being in right. a family, being in a place where people shared that um, common common faith. So, I mean, community is kind of a theme that runs through all this, whether it's community at GM, community at Intel, community at climbing a peak, being yeah. roped in together, kind of being a part of a faith community, being roped in together. Um, is that where you experience God, through being with people? I think so. I think through being with people and and being being outside, being in, you know, what God has um, created in so many um, areas. You asked how it tied into climbing, and I think that that time on the trail, because you have hours when you're just walking, and it can be a really challenging area, or it can just be in a, a, a approach type of trail, but that that quiet time has always been very powerful to me also, and I think uh-huh. that's partly where I find my faith and i think through each of these these trips it's been a it's been a been a gift to not only see where where i am and the incredible quality of folks that i'm with but a chance to to just have quiet time also which is so rare and so hard to find in our you know normal day-to-day lives anymore yeah you know one of the things that i really believe after doing being a minister for the past uh, 40 years is that Everybody does it differently. Everybody experiences soul and soul work and spirituality different. Some people, they read the Bible every day. They have a quote-unquote a quiet time in the morning. And other people, it's out on the trail. It's out running a trail, hiking a trail, being active, being involved outside. Other people paint. They read. They do engineering. Everybody experiences it different. Are you kind of an out guide? Out guide? Absolutely. Outside true. guy? Absolutely. Great, great, great call. Uh, my, my wife co leads a uh, uh, contemplation group in our uh, church. Uh-huh. And, it, and it's a wonderful thing. And I, I'm part of this because she's my wife and I value her. 
but my my contemplation is on the trail and uh-huh. you know when i when i run trails which is most most days when uh, time allows that's my 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 contemplation that's when i can sort through things that's when i i get quieter in, inside um, so yeah, that's that's definitely it for and for me, which doesn't make it right. Everybody's got to find their own their own place, of course. Right. Okay. So you retire. Yes. Sir. Retire at a young age, relatively speaking, fifty three. Fifty four. Fifty four. Yeah. When you retire, a lot of people hang up their cleats. They say, you know, I'm done. I'm retired. I'm going to go play golf. Go play fishing. You didn't. Yes, sir. You yes, kind of ramped it, and I'm, you call me Steve. Don't call me Sir. <laughs> sir is my was my dad. I, call I me Steve. I understand. So you didn't hang up the cleats. You no. kind of like put it in a whole different gear, and you really started living life on a whole new level. What would you say to recent retirees who are wondering, what what am I supposed to be doing? I have this career, and now what do I do? Yeah, it's an excellent question. We had talked about retiring my wife and I for a while, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Intel had, had done well. I'd been treated well, very blessed. We were in a position to do that. And, and I'd also been on the road a lot, too. I was traveling three weeks out of four. Oh, my gosh, on the road. In the U.S. Three weeks out of four. And, oh my and in gosh. the world. Um, but um, my greatest fear before re- retiring was two, right, um, not what am I going from, but what am I going to, and how am I going to contribute as part of that? And the other one, honestly, and I, I bring this up as an answer to your to your question, is um, who's my team? Who's my uh, we're back my to community rope, rope team? Absolutely, yeah, we're back to community. And um, so when people ask me about retiring, folks that I've worked with for years that are that are close friends. Um, my guidance is really twofold, but but uh, foremost is, you know, it's it's not about money, it's not about confidence in that. It is about making sure that you're not going from something, but going to something. And for me, those two things, honestly, were working inside Habitat for Humanity as a, a volunteer, and right. I'm a, I'm a core volunteer and a crew lead inside Habitat in uh, new construction. And, and the other one is Douglas County Search and Rescue. And I've been part of SAR now and par- part of Habitat since I retired, basically. And both of those brought me huge gifts, not only in having something where I felt like I was able to give back for all the wonderful things that I've been given, but they also brought me teams. They, they brought, brought, brought me family. It's the opportunity to you know, serve side by side, to build bonds and, and build friendships with people of a you know, common orientation in terms of wanting to make life better, right? So, Were you drawn to Habitat for a certain reason? You know, I had worked a day or two or three a year for years and years just as as kind, part of building of church, kind of volunteer church, church, church thing, right. going to swing exactly. a hammer, paint a wall. And it was great, and I would do it because there was a church re- request for volunteers, and it was a really positive thing, but that's about what I had, and I didn't want right. to pull, take time away from our, our kids when I wasn't home as often as I would like to be, da-da-da. Right after I retired, um, th- th- they approached me, or we were talking ab- about their um, core volunteer program, which is basically working, you know, every week. And uh, 
I thought it would be very interesting. And I, you know, love being out, outside. I'm an outside guy, right? Um, uh-huh. We have folks that, that do trim or cabinets, and they do a wonderful job. I'm an outside guy, and uh-huh. I love it. There's nothing greater than being up in, you know, roof roof trusses where there's you air and, beneath your feet you and, and doing heights. stuff. You and heights. You love heights. There, there is a, a it, it's a twisted thing, but yes, <laughs> it's, it's definitely part part of me. And it's been great. Habitat does amazing things, and I'm very grateful to be part of that. Um, and and honestly, if I think um, if you'd ask our kids what Dad does when I was in my career, they'd have said, "Well, he t- he talks on the phone a lot, and I think he gives presentations, <laughs> and he's on the plane a lot." And I don't know if they could have given much of an answer beyond that. Uh-huh. If you ask him now what I do. They know that I um, I spend time you know building homes for folks to give them a, a long term path and a long term place. That I help bring folks home when they're you know lost or in trouble out on a trail or on a you know rock face or whatever. Right. So it's been a, a wonderful chapter for me in terms of people, in terms of doing things where I believe there is uh, value to people, and uh, it's it's been a great path. Talk about Douglas County Search and Rescue. How did you get? Is that just kind of an outgrowth of your climbing and being involved again in community? How did how did you was, get into Douglas? It County was definitely Search and part of it. I, I I think my perception of what SAR Search and Rescue was, was SAR is it SAR SAR S A R is Search, Search and, and Res- Rescue Search and Rescue. We are Douglas County Search and Rescue DC SAR. So my perception of Search and, and Rescue or SAR was folks that you know spend all their time taking somebody off a rock face that had a fall or got cliffed out kind of thing. And it's a lot more than that. You know, we, we actually in our county have um, a lot of folks um, not only that are in wilderness and, and may get lost on a trail or have an ATV that bumps into a tree or flips over a dirt bike type of thing. We do a lot of, a lot of um, um, urban type rescue also. So picture grandma oh, wow. or Urban. grandpa yeah. yeah wow and it's priceless honestly it's uh it, it it's a different kind of thing than i than i planned but it's really important so picture grandma or grandpa have d- dementia and right. they walk away from the the home with their their family or the home that they're in once they're not sure where they are they're at major risk right right bad things can happen so being able to find them and bring them home or very young folks that may be on the, the, the autism type of spectrum, um, where there's an attraction often to, as an example, water. Um, so they're at, they're at risk if 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 they're um, lost or out. And so we get paged out uh, times of day or night for. Um, urban rescue too. Wow, I had no idea because when I th- you think of Douglas County, I come up thinking there's like Rampart Range and those kind of mountains. Yep. But that's kind of it. Is is there other wilderness areas? There is. In Douglas there is. County? There's 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 Rampart. You're absolutely right. And Indian Creek north of that. There's also Castlewood Canyon. Oh, which Castlewood is kind Canyon. Out right. by Parker. Right. There's um, Rocks, Roxboro, and um, Douglas kind of goes all the way to the Platte River. Oh, so, we're, so uh, it's way out there. Yeah, we're, I didn't know Douglas County goes that far uh, west. It's a big county. It's 850 square miles, wow. and you can hide a lot of folks in there. Yeah, you know. right. So, but um, the way that our county. Um, search and Rescue and uh, the, the so Sheriff's Office is 
structured is they're placing a high priority not only on folks that are you know lost lost in the wilderness but these urban searches also because folks can get hurt in that so we're we're very grateful to go out and if you can bring anybody home um it doesn't matter where they're that's got to be a satisfying thing to bring someone hugely home. huge i mean i was treated very well th- th- throughout intel and i'm i'm very grateful for it um but there's nothing like helping somebody come home and bringing right. them back to right. family it's a gift being part what's of it. next for you what are you gonna do next yeah, excellent question um there are you know some more climbs out there i've been gradually planning that uh conversation with my wife because um, (laughs) if you don't talk about it first then you're just not paying attention but um yeah uh so i so there's there's a couple more climbs out there probably not anything as um, high or as challenging as some of the ones that, that, that i've done those are great more than anything else, though, I think is to keep doing what I'm doing. This is, has been a gift, this chapter right. that I'm in now, and being the best you know, um, husband, father, brother, son, friend that I can is a gift. Um, and certainly w- within Habitat, there's always more to do. Housing is so important in Colorado and everywhere. You know, one of the things when I'm thinking about the, our conversation over the past several minutes is that sense of community. Uh, being roped in to other people, uh, whether it's climbing, whether it's at church, whether it's at Intel or GM or at Douglas County Search and Rescue or Habitat, what would you tell the people who are feeling isolated and alone? How do you, how do you encourage them to go find somebody to be roped into? Yeah. There is no, I mean, it's very tempting to give a quick trite answer, and that's uh-huh. what it would be is trite. For, for me, it was probably the most important decision that I made moving into my retirement. And I think it, uh, it's when you choose to engage in something personally that those opportunities open. That's what I found. When I got deeper into volunteering inside Habitat, deeper into volunteering in, inside Search and Rescue, then those bonds came with other people of a um, common heart because Lord knows growing up, you know, not being able to speak as fluently as I would like. I, I, I had good friends, but a small number. I was not the guy that, you know, was r- r- running for, you know, king of the, the um, class kind of thing. But where I engaged, where I got involved, teams and those those kind of things, that's where those bonds formed, which I, I don't know if that's a, a per- per- perfect answer, but for me, I found that it's, it's in, in the end, it's not about what we do, it's who we, we, we do it with. But if you're following your passion, and yeah. that, that passion is yeah. about serving others, then you're going to have wonderful people around you. That's probably been one of the greatest gifts in this chapter, is knowing that when I'm working on a house, when I'm helping find someone or training for it, the, pe- the people that I'm with are all people that have chosen to be there. They're of a common heart that this is important, that bringing somebody home, that bringing somebody into a new home is important. Yeah, I love that sense of community. I mean, I love the fact that um, you weren't solo climbing, that you, you were part of a team. You were part of a team ro- roped in because, like, you know, for me, um, it's one of the reasons why I'm not a solo pastor is because I love being a part of a team. I think because it's like it takes when you're on a team and realize it takes all of you. 
everybody's got their gifts, everybody's got their weaknesses, everybody's a human being, and you learn how to how to compliment each other, how to have each other's back. It's a it's the best part of life is working together on very a much. Team. Yeah. Very much. I think uh, for for me, one, one of my other key learnings, and it really helped as far as you know, traveling to every continent and places where I wouldn't have necessarily gone otherwise, is there's absolute goodness in everyone. Wow. And this is such yeah. an interesting time in our world, in our country, everywhere, where it's so easy to find how we're not the same as, as someone else and to find something that uh, we, we d- disagree. And Lord knows I find that. But when I'm when I'm doing it right, when I'm doing it well, that that empathy for what they're going through and finding that goodness in them makes it so much better for me and and builds new bonds and builds new friends where I I wouldn't have found them otherwise. Great, Dave. This has been a great conversation. Thoroughly have enjoyed it. You are such an inspiration. Um, just some of your insights. I think you know the whole thing of. Uh, overcoming stuttering is harder than climbing Denali. I think that's a powerful insight for people who are dealing with a disability that, you know, you're dealing with your disability is a challenge. You have got to work hard, have the ambition to overcome. So that's good. Great conversation. All right. This is Steve Poos Benson and Cowboy Jesus. You can uh, find me at Columbine United Church. Uh, we have two services on Sunday morning at 8.30 and 10.30 with adult education hour in between. You can find us on YouTube, on Facebook, a lot of different ways you can read my blog. Also Cowboy Jesus, and we are also very involved in social media here at the church. So a lot of different ways. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, Dave, for the conversation. My pleasure. Everybody take care. We'll see you.